It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. It's Saturday night. Time to let loose after a long, stressful week of work. When Sunday morning comes around though, well, there's always that question. Was all that booze worth the pounding head, the misery of the hangover you're about to get? What if it doesn't have to be that way though? What if your Saturday night could live up to its full, enjoyable potential without ruining your Sunday? Hangovers are not just an inconvenience of the weekend, of course. It's estimated that they account for one of the biggest economic costs of excessive drinking. Drink on a work night and your productivity the next day probably won't be at its best. There's a more worrying side to all this too. Alcohol is used by most people to enhance their fun. But remember, this is a drug and it can be misused and become dangerous. Alcohol is the cause of 3 million deaths each year worldwide. Short of death, it's also been linked to many other illnesses like liver cirrhosis, cancers and cardiovascular disease, as well as mental health conditions. People still want to have a good time though, and scientists are coming to the rescue. Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist, our weekly podcast on science and technology. I'm Alok Jha, The Economist science correspondent. Today we're exploring how to replace alcohol. Low and no alcohol drinks have been getting more popular in recent years. We'll look at the technology that makes all of that possible. We'll also examine new types of drinks that aim to mimic the buzz of booze but without any alcohol. And then there's the ultimate ambition, a chemical replacement for alcohol itself that could be added to drinks. All the benefits of alcohol, none of the downsides. To start, it's worth understanding exactly how alcohol affects the brain. 
Someone who knows all about it is David Nutt, a professor of neuropsychopharmacology at Imperial College London. David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Now, many listeners probably have tried alcohol at some point in their lives, or at least aware of its effects. But can you start by telling us what happens physiologically when someone drinks alcohol? Well, alcohol, of course, the effects start before it gets in the brain. This is the taste and the smell. And it's very important to say one thing here. Now, very few people drink alcohol because they like the taste. In fact, most people don't even know what the taste of alcohol is. If you give them neat alcohol on their tongue, they spit it out. So most of us drink flavoured alcohols, you know, flavoured with hops or flavoured with bits of uh, grape called wine, etc. So alcohol has an effect on the tongue, on the smell, uh, and, and that, those effects go straight into the brain. But over time, those initial responses to alcohol get associated with the pleasurable effects of alcohol, which are mediated through alcohol then entering the body through the stomach and then through the blood and into the brain. And in the brain, alcohol then starts to turn on or turn off different neurotransmitters. There are about 80 different neurotransmitters. And one of them is a particular target for alcohol very early on in the rising phase of having consumed some, and that's the GABA system. And as alcohol turns on the GABA system in the brain, you begin to relax and chill out and become more interested and more comfortable talking to other people. The pro-sociability effects of alcohol are mediated through increasing the activity of the GABA system. But as you drink more and more, then alcohol starts to interact with other neurotransmitters and you begin to get into problems such as wanting more. The moreishness comes from releasing dopamine and some of the addictive possibilities potential comes from releasing endorphins. And then eventually at very high doses, you start to block the main transmitter that keeps you awake and alive called glutamate. And then if you take too much, you have blackouts and then eventually, you know, you'll just die of respiratory failure. So alcohol is complicated. It has a stepwise impact on the brain because the effects are, are targeted on multiple different brain systems and brain regions. Well, let's go through those steps then. Um, you talked about the effects that make you chilled out and more sociable and all of that. And that's the sort of friendly face of alcohol in that that's why people enjoy drinking it. You know, that this is a social lubricant. And so specifically about the, the GABA system, just tell us a bit more about that. What's going on there that makes people feel more sociable, happy or whatever else? So there are two main neurotransmitters in your brain, one called GABA and one called glutamate. And they're yin and yang. And in evolutionary terms, they've been around together as brother and sister, really, for billions of years. Wherever you get one, you always get the other. And that's because they balance each other out. And your brain walks a, a kind of tightrope between having too much glutamate, where you get overexcited, you get anxious, you even have seizures, and too little glutamate, in which case you fall asleep. So that, that these, these two neurotransmitters are like the counterweights on a tightrope walker's uh, pole. GABA keeps the brain calm. It keeps the brain under control. Now, when you get into anxious situations, like, for instance, going into a party, meeting strange people, your GABA system seems to be turned off a bit. And that's why alcohol is so effective, because it just tickles that GABA system up to back to where it should be. It takes away the social anxiety, the performance anxiety, while I make a fool of myself if I chat to someone. It puts you back where you want to be in equilibrium. And so some people argue that, you know, there's a human need to use alcohol in certain situations then. What would you respond to that? There is no question that alcohol is human's favourite drug. And 80% um, of uh, adults in, in the UK drink alcohol. And they largely use it in social situations. It is 
historically been the drug that has cemented relationships, increased social interaction in humankind, going back probably since the beginning of non-nomadics. Once settlement started, alcohol seems to be being produced and being used. Now, one of the side effects of drinking alcohol, of course, is the hangovers that come afterwards. Can you explain what that is and why people get them? Well, I can make a contribution to understanding hangovers. It's remarkable. Of all the areas of biological research, medical research, the hangover is probably the least researched in terms of the economic cost because we believe it contributes maybe a loss of at least 10 billion per year in the UK in terms of productivity, and it's hardly studied. But we do know some things about hangover. For instance, we know it relates to how much you drink. It relates to the complexity of the alcohol you drink. If you get drunk on a very complex, rich, old whiskey or a cognac, you're likely to have worse hangovers because there are more complex alcohols there. We think it in part relates to dehydration because alcohol essentially encourages the loss of water from the body. But recently, and that's some of our research, we've shown that it also relates to inflammation in the brain. And that inflammation is driven in part by alcohol itself, which is an irritant substance. As you all know, if you rub alcohol onto a wound to kill bugs, it also makes the, the nerves of the wound hurt like anything because it's an irritant. But alcohol is also broken down into a substance called acetaldehyde. And that's an inevitable way of getting rid of alcohol. But acetaldehyde is particularly unpleasant. It gives you the flushing that you get with alcohol. And it also is much more inflammatory than alcohol itself. So that cocktail of alcohol and acetaldehyde lead to inflammation in the brain, similar to what you might actually get with COVID. The effects are not so long lasting as with COVID, but they're similar in the direction that the brain is inflamed. And that explains why anti-inflammatory drugs like ibuprofen can be useful in helping people deal with the, the pain and the discomfort of hangover. Now, the negative impacts of alcohol, of course, go much further than hangovers. And, you know, misuse of alcohol can cause many, many serious health problems. I mean, I just wonder if you could take us through some of the ones that concern you the most. There are two separate dimensions of misuse. One of the social dimensions and the, and the problems of violence. Most people don't realise, but it costs twice as much to police alcohol-related violence and public disorder than it costs to the health service to deal with alcohol-related illness. So we're talking about seven billion in Britain versus three billion or three and a half billion. That's partly because we don't bother to look after the health harms of people who drink a lot anyway, so we're under-treating the health damage. But if we look specifically at the health harms, well, of course, some that are very well-known, like cirrhosis of the liver, and there are others which are much less well-known, like brain damage and cardiovascular damage. In fact, more people die of cardiovascular disease, heart disease, or stroke caused by excessive drinking, and actually die of liver disease. So, David, how would you rate alcohol then? Um, alongside the other recreational drugs that we have available to us today. Um, obviously, there are many legal and illegal ones, but alcohol, as you've outlined, has many pleasurable benefits, but also many, many costly health problems too associated with it. How does it rate compared to other ones in terms of its uh, safety? Yes, if you look specifically at safety, this is some research that uh, I've been part of now for, wow, nearly 15 years. It actually got me sacked as the government's... Uh, Chief Drugs Advisor, for daring to say that alcohol was amongst some of the most harmful of all drugs. Did it stop you saying that to anyone? No, they just said it was wrong, and they sacked me. For being... <laughs> what I said was that if we really cared 
about the harms of drugs, we would try to reduce the harms of alcohol, uh, particularly the social harms, the harms to other people, the harms that come from drunkenness and violence and and uh, and theft and etc. But when you look at the harms of drugs, recreational drugs to users, alcohol is not the most harmful drug. Crack cocaine, crystal meth, heroin, fentanyls, they're more harmful to the user. But alcohol's up there, it's certainly in the top five or six, because a large proportion of people who do use alcohol do come to some harm from it. But the reason it's the most harmful drug overall is, of course, because it's so widely used. So you've got this combination of comparatively high harm to the user and, and a very high harm to society. If we discovered alcohol today, how do you think people would respond, you know, given the sort of scientific base of you know, assessing harms and uh, introducing new drugs to the world in the very careful ways? How would people and authorities respond to it? Well, we can say categorically, if alcohol was being developed today as a medicine, it would not pass the first hurdle. Suppose you realise that this new chemical alcohol could make a trifle much more appealing and you wanted to put it into your, your trifle mix. And you went to the European Food Safety Agency and you said, what's the safe limit of alcohol? And they would put it through their tests, which they have done now. And we know that the, the maximum recommended amount of alcohol per year would be a glass of wine per year. So if you treated it as something like a food colorant. So it's very clear that we uh, have a, what's called a rather blinkered approach to the harms of alcohol. Uh, and we don't treat it in the same way as we treat any other substance that harms us, with possible exception of, in some countries, tobacco. And, of course, the reasons for that are complex and a mixture of economics and history and, and a bit of religion thrown in. But uh, it would not be allowable in any normal, modern regulatory regime, either as a medicine or even as a food, if it was discovered today. OK, David, thank you very much for that. We'll be hearing more from you a bit later in the show. While alcohol can help people feel more comfortable in social settings, society at large would be better off if we could find ways to reduce the harms associated with drinking excessively. And perhaps that message is already starting to filter through. Lately, the pendulum seems to be swinging against alcohol. Abstinence is no longer so uncommon. Temporary pauses in drinking, such as dry January, are increasingly popular. Young people, especially those in Gen Z, drink far less than their parents and grandparents. But people still want to socialise and have a good time with their friends. When I was younger, going to a pub to drink beer meant drinking alcohol. Alcohol-free drinks did exist, but in vanishingly small amounts, and where they did exist, well, they just weren't really that good. Recently, though, low or no alcohol beer has improved dramatically. Now, I love a cold, bubbly lager, but given that my youthful ability to handle large amounts of full-strength beer has long disappeared, nowadays it's the low and no alcohol lagers that I look for first when I find myself in a pub. Anything else, a proper German or Belgian beer say, it just feels like too much. I know exactly how it'll make me feel the next morning, and I do my best to avoid it. I've wondered for a while exactly why there's now so much choice in the low and no alcohol market. Our producer Jason Hoskin went to find out how breweries are pivoting to alcohol-free beer, 
and why these new drinks are finally starting to taste as good as their alcoholic alternatives. On an unassuming industrial estate in South London is the warehouse where Brixton Brewery make their beer. Hello. Hi. Hi. Hey, Jess. Yes. I'm Jason. Nice How's to meet you. Yeah, good, thank you. Oh, How are you? Yeah, thank good. you. I'm just grabbing my things. Like many other craft beer businesses, Brixton Brewery have recently started making an alcohol-free beer. Co-founders Jez Galorn and Social Benjamin explained the technology and their methods that have made this possible. There's basically three methods you can use for producing a low or no alcohol beer. You can use vacuum distillation, you can use reverse osmosis, or you can use the limited fermentation method, and we use the latter. And effectively what we do is, when we're producing a wort, which is the kind of the building block for a beer, we'll do a mash, which is the mixture of malted barley, in this case, we also have oats and wheat and water. And normally you would mash at about high 60 degrees Celsius. But to produce a non-alcoholic beer, we raise that to above 80 degrees. And what that does is it creates an environment where the enzymes in the malt, alpha and beta amylase, become inactive and they will not do a full conversion of the starches into sugars from the malted barley and then therefore create a wort, which is a mixture of water and those sugars, um, that is not very fermentable. It's quite a weak wort, so the gravity of that wort is not comparable to when we're making, for example, our Reliance Pale Ale, which is over 4%. We're aiming to produce a beer that is below 0.5%, which is the cutoff for producing non-alcoholic beer. Anything above that is classed as alcoholic. It's around the same strength as a fermented banana, for example. We will then ferment that wort with a yeast that, again, doesn't produce a lot of alcohol during the fermentation. And the yeast that we select doesn't ferment maltotriose, which was one of the sugars. And therefore, there's a limited fermentation and the amount of alcohol produced does not exceed 0.5%. And that's how we end up with a non-alcoholic beer. So why did you choose this method rather than the other two that you just mentioned? The reason that we use this method is it doesn't require any capital outlay. So we don't need to buy any equipment. We can use the existing equipment that we have and still produce an alcoholic beer. Would you be able to just describe the other two methods? So the first one is vacuum distillation. So effectively using that method, you're producing a normal strength beer and you want to drive off the alcohol by heating. You can lower the boiling point of the alcohol by putting the liquid in a vacuum and therefore um, vaporizing the alcohol without the heat damaging the underlying beer. The second method, reverse osmosis, is effectively a filtration process where you pass the beer through a membrane and that will filter out the alcohol. And why was it important for you guys to produce a alcohol-free beer? I think primarily because we're all about choice. You know, we also believe in moderation. And I think, you know, by adding an alcohol-free beer to our range, people have the choice to have a bevy without the buzz. <laughs> That's right, yeah. And uh, I think also there has definitely been an increased demand for it. So it's not just that we, you know, we're not creating the market here. Um, we did a no alcohol beer for the first time 
last year. And after we did that, we got loads and loads of requests to have an alcohol-free option available more regularly. So the low alcohol beer scene has obviously taken off. Do you think that will continue? Yeah, I do. I think most brands now have an alcohol-free version and there does seem to be demand for that. And I think that's great. I, I agree. I think it will continue. And I also think it's to be embraced and celebrated. I think it's you know a great opportunity to include more people in an experience that they might not have otherwise if they hesitate to drink alcohol. One really interesting space in the drinks industry is in sort of like hybrid drinks, you know, beer, kombucha combinations and things like that. People do really like new, interesting things. And so I think we cycle through trends very quickly now. Um, and I potentially this is one of those, but maybe not. Maybe not. Who knows? We'll see. Should we try it? Yes. Sure. <laughs> Thank you. Dive in. It, it smells like proper beer, you know, real beer, alcoholic it really does, beer. It? Yeah. yeah, yeah, it really does. This so, style of beer is a is a pale ale, so it's not too strongly hoppy. So you won't kind of have your face blown off by that real hoppy astringency, but it's got still got a really really nice um, flavor to it. I don't think I could tell. I I think if someone gave this to me, I don't mm. think I'd be able to tell. Oh, really? That's great to hear. <laughs> That's very well, nice. There's not that much difference. I mean, we had some, we've had, I've had tried some really bad ones in doing the research for, <laughs> for, for bringing this one. And I think probably some of the worst ones are the ones where they base, it tastes as though, so when, when you have the sugary, malty water, and a lot of them really just taste like that. The arrival of alcohol-free drinks is very welcome. They have their place, but let's face it, these drinks won't always cut it. Sometimes people want some of the effects of alcohol, whether that's to feel more relaxed or chattier or just funnier. Fortunately, there are some other alcohol-free drinks that can help out. That's all coming up. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Today on Babbage, how to enjoy the positive effects of alcohol without paying the price. I'm here with Natasha Loder, The Economist's health editor. Natasha, thanks for joining me. How are you? I'm very well. Nice to be with you. And uh, Natasha, there are a new class of drinks on offer. They don't contain alcohol, but they're meant to recreate some of the sensations of alcohol. Can you describe them for me? Well, the drinks industry has cottoned on to the fact that people are drinking less alcohol because they're worried about its health impact. So they're trying to create alternatives that have some sorts of functional ingredients. And they're doing this with herbs and other plant-based ingredients. And are these drinks actually doing anything to give people a sort of a sense of a buzz or anything? Or is it just grandiose claims and placebo? 
Well, I mean, this is the $64 million question. I think it's absolutely reasonable to be sceptical about the claims. But equally, what they're doing is really no different to us consuming caffeine in our tea or guarana in a soft drink or ginseng, in fact. But what they're using is a sort of slightly newer range of ingredients and flavours and obviously marketing. So really, it's hard to generalise about the whole category because it depends on what's in them and how much they've put in them. And it's hard to know if they're doing anything without tasting it yourself, in which case there may be the placebo effect. And then obviously, that's what the drinks industry wants us to do. They want us to go out and try their drinks. Can you give me some examples? What kinds of things are people putting into drinks and what kinds of claims are they making? Well, one example is CBD, um, which seems to be put in everything, including body creams and lip balms, for example. And this comes from the cannabis plant. It's not the ingredient that makes you high, but it's another plant-based ingredient that is supposed to have a function. Make you calm, I think. That's that's what it is. Something like that. Calm you down, yeah. But I mean, there's a lot of claims out there. But also remember that people are happily taking hundreds of millions of pounds and dollars worth of food herbal supplements, I would say, every year in tablet form. So this is not a concept that's completely novel to people. And some firms are saying that the collection of ingredients they are using are going to sort of help reduce the impact of stress, for example. And while that idea is plausible and while those individual ingredients might be shown in some sort of trial somewhere to have reduced some level of stress. What you don't really know when you're buying a bottle is whether there's actually enough of it in the bottle and whether mixed together you're going to get that effect. So it really is buyer beware, I would say, on that count. Exactly. And and plants have all sorts of interesting psychedelic effects, which you and I have talked about before, which people have been harnessing for thousands of years. Um, now, David Nutt, who we heard from earlier, has been researching how to make drinks that can mimic the effects of alcohol in the body. And he's made something along the lines of the drinks that you've just been describing. Can you tell us about that? So David Nutt has created this new drink called Sentia, and I've been studying it uh, both inside and out. And there's a whole bunch of botanical ingredients in it. Um, It starts with water, agave syrup, blackberry concentrate, aronia, which is a kind of berry, I've never heard of it. And then some botanical ingredients that are described as linden, passionflower, licorice, ashwanga, hawthorn, gentian, hibiscus, and a few things I've never heard of, and I'm sure you won't have either. And what's I guess, unique about what's going on here is that the person behind this, David Nutt, is a neuroscientist. He says he's picked ingredients that will activate a particular neurotransmitter in the brain called GABA. And by doing so, he's claiming it's going to loosen up our inhibitions just a little bit, a bit like what you get when you start drinking the first glass of wine. Now, after Sentia, His aim is to create a synthetic alcohol called Alcarel. And he's been a little bit more intentional here with the molecular design of the molecule. And what he's designed it to do is target particular subtypes of our GABA receptor. These are scattered in the front of our brain, exactly where we do our socialising. And he's also tried to create a molecule that has a sort of plateau effect, i.e. you can't overdrink alcohol and also a molecule that will be cleared out of the brain relatively quickly. And so this is what David Nutt is trying to do with Alcorel. He's trying to design a molecule that is better than alcohol in as many ways as he can possibly manage. 
Okay, thanks for now, Natasha. We're joined again by Professor David Nutt, who's going to tell us about Sentia and also his research into Alcarel. David, you've been researching the effects of drugs on the brain for decades. Has it been a challenge to try and get people interested in alternatives to alcohol? Well, a lot of people thought it was mad and and stupid and impossible and you'll never do it because it's never been done. You know, those kind of arguments were thrown out. And also the question was, would the industry be supportive? Initially, the industry wasn't supportive because the alcohol industry is an extremely profitable industry. It has to make really very little innovation in order to keep profitable. But in the last few years, we've seen change. And I think the industry now realizes that this is an important way forward for them because we've seen particularly in people in their 25 to 40-year-old professional workers, move away from alcohol for health reasons and also for performance reasons. There are quite a group of people who don't drink in the week now because they want to make sure that they're not hungover when they go to work the next day. They want to be on tip-top of their performance. So these lower knowers are turning away from alcohol. uh, And uh, up till now, the only substitute they've had has been zero alcohol drinks, which are actually essentially just a rather sophisticated kind of lemonade. And that's where what we've been doing fills that gap. It's a functional drink. It gives them some of the benefits of alcohol, particularly the benefits they want, the relaxation, the sociability, without anything like as much of a risk of health harms or or, or performance harms. What exactly is in it, David? Sentia is the first of what will be at least three separate uh, drinks, all of which contain herbs which are approved foods or food additives. So they've all been around for long enough to be approved as being safe herbs, which contain within them either substances which can turn on the GABA system, like alcohol, or substances to facilitate the activity of those other substances or or herbs which actually give the taste and the flavor. So it's a botanical cocktail that is designed to mimic the effects of low doses of alcohol. And so, David, so th- these herbs have been in existence for a long time and are known to latch on to the bits of their GABA system already. Well, the herbs contain molecules, compounds that do that, yes. So we brought together a cocktail of these traditional herbs that essentially had the sort of maximal or concentrated impact on the GABA system, put them together to, to make this cocktail, and then added other herbs which we know from other work, facilitate the uptake of those particular compounds into the body and then into the brain. So we could maximize the effect, particularly to get a profile of effect which is uh, similar to alcohol. Because what we didn't want to do, we didn't want to make a drink that was like eating a food. We wanted to get something that would get in fast. You know, alcohol is quite a challenge to mimic because it gets in very quickly and, uh, and gets out relatively quickly. So we wanted to target that time profile getting it in fast enough for people to actually feel the effect early on in an engagement so that they could benefit from the impact. Can I drink too much of this? Well, you can drink too much of anything. Look, there are recommended daily allowances for the herbs, and that's what we recommended. So the the amount we recommend people drink is constrained by those those RDAs for the herbs. So we don't recommend up to 200 mils a day. Okay. But if you were to drink more, I think it's very unlikely that you'll come to any harm because the effect isn't cumulative. Like, you see, the point about alcohol is the more you drink, the more different systems you engage. 
but it's with uh, with sentia that you'll only carry on engaging the GABA system. And also it gets out of the brain and the body faster than alcohol, which is one of the reasons you don't get a hangover. So if I take a lot of it, am I going to get very, very, very relaxed or is it am I just going to sort of hit yeah, you a hit level a and then I'm not... That's gonna... right. We, we, we targeted trying to get uh, this ceiling effect, which would, if you drink more, it'll last longer, but it won't go higher. If you get wasted on alcohol, what do you get on Sentia? Um, what? Yes, you get integrated, maybe. Uh, <laughs> interacted. I don't know. It's That's just... not going to take off. <laughs> I'm totally integrated. <laughs> okay. Well, let's move on. Let's move on. Now, David, beyond Sentia, what you've been working on in the lab is something you call Alcarel, which is something that you know you've talked about as the future of alcohol. So with Alcarel then, tell us how you've gone about designing it as a molecule and what it does in terms of the brain chemistry you're trying to sort of interact with. So Alcarel was designed to target the particular subtypes of the GABA receptor that exist in the parts of the brain, the frontal parts of the brain, where we do our socialising. And the molecule was designed with three separate dimensions of activity. That's why it's been quite a challenging piece of science. The first is was to was to have that specificity of targeting the particular receptor subtypes and not to reflect or interact with other subtypes or other receptors. The second was to get this plateau effect, a ceiling effect. So even if you drank a whole bottle, you wouldn't get desperately intoxicated. And the third was to get what we call the kinetics right. So it gets in fast and it gets out fast. And, and making molecules that do all those three things was quite challenging because, you know, you've got three separate dimensions of chemistry there. But, but we have a chemical series and that's um, been patented. And we now have um, our lead compound, which is, if you could see it, it's sitting on my shelf here. And we're in the stage now of basically raising funding to take it through food safety testing, is it? So um, that's a requirement in order for us to then be able to make it available widely as an ingredient. You've talked about Sentia having herbs that can do very similar things. Why is Alcarel better than the sort of concoction of herbs in something like Sentia, which is a more natural product in its way, but I suppose is less, less accurate. But why is it better than that? Well, it's different in a number of important ways. So the first is it is very specific. So we can tune the molecules uh, in a way which we can't tune what nature has made for us. The second is being uh, non-botanical, it's completely clear, so it can go into any drink without changing the colour. A litre of Alcarel contains the equivalent of maybe 50 litres of the botanical. And um, the other advantage really is that um, the shelf life could be quite a lot longer. Uh, Natasha? Yeah, I'm fascinated to know how you are sure that it's not going to give you a hangover. Well, we've tried it and it doesn't. Um, You've exhaustively tested this, haven't you, David, in the interests of science? (laughs) But it's designed not to give you a hangover because it doesn't target the parts of the brain which give you hangovers. It doesn't target the neurotransmitters like glutamate which give you hangovers. It doesn't turn into free radicals which give you hangovers. So so how... How drunk can you get on it? Well, this is one of the interesting aspects of being in this field where we're making these more synthetic or sort of biomimetic molecules is it, we can change the chemistry a little bit to change the potency. So it is possible to make a range of different potencies of alcohol. So you could make some where the plateau is 
one glass of wine and you could make some with a plateau is take two glasses of wine or possibly you could make one with a plateau is three glasses of wine and that that's technically possible we, you know we're starting off targeting one you know a glass of wine 125 mils say or half a pint of beer something you know where you begin to relax and chill out and then have another one to maintain that but in theory we couldn't make them more active if we wanted to but uh, we want to you know one step at a time so when you say plateau do you mean that if you set it to uh, plateau at, let's say, two glasses of wine, that I could drink 10 glasses of this stuff, but it would only make me as drunk as two glasses of actual wine. Is that what you're saying? Correct. That's right. It's a, the concept is well established in pharmacology. It's called the partial agonists. That's remarkable. So what you're inventing um, is a, a novel sort of molecule. What kind of regulatory challenges are you going to need to overcome to really start putting this into drinks? The vision is to take it through food safety testing because alcohol is a food. Uh, alcohol is not sold as a drug, it's sold as a food. So to do that, we have to go through and comply with food safety regulations. And there are European ones and there are American ones. And then when you pass those tests, you do a whole series of tests in humans to work out what the right dose is and to make sure there are no unwanted effects, etc. And then... It can be approved as what's called grass, generally regarded as safe. And at that point, then you can sell it um, in the open um, market there. And talking about unwanted effects, I mean, what sort of unwanted effects and side effects are we talking about? Well, mostly it's toxicological effects. I mean, mostly the, the challenge is to make sure it is safe. It, it meets the criteria of safety in the doses that are going to be used when people drink it. Now, um, in parallel, we will be doing similar tests with alcohol because we want to look at the comparative safety. We're, we're targeting uh, currently it being at least 100 times uh, safer and less harmful than alcohol. I think that should reassure people. David, how long do you think it will take to pass through all these different hurdles? And when do you think Alcarel or some version of it will be in drinks uh, for people to buy? Well, the best case scenario will be two years. I think it's likely to be four years because it's a very complicated and sophisticated thing to have to do with all these different tests done in different places by different companies. So it's quite a, a quite a complex program of research. But I think within four years, we will be in the position to put the dossier into the FDA. So maybe, you know, hopefully four years. David, your group isn't the only one looking at synthetic alcohols or replacements for alcohols, is it? I mean, just tell me a bit about what excites you the most about the work of others in this field? The good thing is it's a field which is, it does exist, this third way between non-alcohol and alcohol. There are other companies in the field. Um, they're not targeting uh, GABA in the same explicit way as we are, although I suspect they probably will in the, in the not-too-distant future as they see uh, the success of what we're doing. I mean, there are other ways you can mimic some of the effects of alcohol through affecting other neurotransmitters. or There are... Drinks are less well defined, I think, in terms of their chemistry. But, but yeah, no, it's great. It, you know, I think it's this is a movement, and we want to, you know, we want to be want to encourage that movement. We want to encourage competition. We want to encourage innovation. It's really not just about drinking; it's about health. You know, can we have healthy sociability? And that would be great. You know, that's we'd all want that, wouldn't we? I think I think we'd all agree, David. Nutt, thank you very much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.
Well, Natasha, all of this sounds a bit too good to be true. And uh, I think, well, the only thing we, you and I can do is to um, do a bit of uh, scientific experimentation here. Uh, we've both got hold of some Sentia. So shall we try it? I would love to try it, but I'd just point out it isn't a scientific experiment. I'm afraid it's very subjective. Oh, spoil sport. Yes, of course. <laughs> um, but let's give it a go. Let's see if we experience any of those so-called functional effects that Natasha talked about earlier. Let me pour some of this out. Natasha's making herself a cocktail, I can see. She can, she's making herself a cocktail. I've not, oh, there we go. Oh, that went wrong. <laughs> and then the recording stops. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. I just thought I'd give it a bit of a shake so we'd get a bit of sound, but... <laughs> Why would you shake, right, Tonic? Right. That's a terrible idea. <laughs> clearly, clearly a biologist <laughs> and not a physicist over there. Yeah. Okay, here we go. Cheers. Cheers. Chin chin. Here we go. Mm. And you're drinking it with, uh, with Tonic and I'm drinking it neat. I mean, it's not bad. It's not a bad flavour. It's nice. To me, yours is probably better, but to me, it does taste a bit like drinking neat cordial. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe I made a mistake here. Now, while we wait for it to take its inevitable effect, can you tell me, Natasha, how you feel about the future of alcohol after listening to what David Nutt had to say? Well, with the caveat that I may be under the influence uh, at the moment, I will say I think it's quite exciting. You know, the idea we can redesign some of these molecules that we've been using for thousands of years and create something better is a really positive thing. But we should also pursue these alternatives with a critical eye. Harm reduction products can have unexpected effects. We know that e-cigarettes, for example, have been taken up by teens in large numbers in the US. And with any novel drinks, we then need to keep an eye out for the downsides. Sentia is categorised as a food supplement. You have to take care not to drink too much of it. It might not be safe for everyone, like pregnant women. And similarly, we're going to need to keep our eyes open to the downsides of synthetic alcohol when it arrives. I mean, I think it's, for me, what's interesting about all of this is that I think for people who drink alcohol and have dealt with the positive and negative consequences, you probably just think, oh, well, that's just alcohol. There's nothing we can do about it. You just have to sort of measure your intake. But now the idea of replacing it with something else that's a bit cleaner, it's a bit more healthy, the inverted commas, doesn't have the long-term illness consequences. And that is quite exciting, actually. So people can enjoy themselves and, and not get ill in later life. Uh, and then that's that's the important thing here, isn't it? I mean, to what extent do you think, Natasha, that research like David's and his colleagues around the world could reduce the public health burden of something like alcohol? Well, it's hard to be specific, but it has a huge potential, of course, because, you know, we do know the burdens of alcohol on public health are great ones. And we do know that the next generation is much more interested in healthy living than we are. And if we have options, then I'm sure they'll be used. OK, well, Natasha, I feel it's probably a good time now to have a quick chat about what we've both been reading in the pages of The Economist. Um, what have you been enjoying from the current issue? Well, the current issue, I really enjoyed the piece on the brain that we wrote, which was taking a really deep dive into the other cells in the brain. Those are the glia. Um, we talk a lot about the neurons in the brain, but turns out that there are some other cells in the brain that are doing lots and lots of interesting jobs that we're only just beginning to discover more about. So I would definitely recommend that. That is a good article, actually, because these other cells, things like astrocytes and other things, 
they're regulating how the neurons do their thinking. So a bit like DNA, where we used to think that most of it was junk, but it turns out that the junk DNA is not junk at all, which is, you know, always something that you find in science, things that you think one thing, they're not at all. Um, can I ask you another question? Yes. Are you feeling integrated yet? I'm definitely feeling something. I'm feeling, I would say, 25% sillier than I was um, <laughs> before I started drinking this. So there you go. Your glia are doing their jobs to my, sort of get, get things I going. It's my glia. <laughs> I don't know what it is. Uh, Natasha, thank you very much for doing the very hard work of exploring the future of alcohol with me. Enjoy the rest of your sentia. And, and I hope that you get fully integrated later. Cheers. Thanks very much. Our thanks also to David Nutt, Jez Gulorn, and Social Benjamin. And of course, thank you for listening to Babbage. Don't forget that you can read plenty more of our science and technology coverage in The Economist. Listeners can get a special introductory rate at economist.com slash podcast offer. The link, as always, is in the show notes. Babbage is produced by Jason Hoskin with mixing and sound design by Nico Rofast. The executive producer is Marguerite Howell. I'm Alok Jha, and in London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation... Partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.